continue our series on the future. And, uh, uh, well, I want to introduce tonight's topic by first telling you, uh, as if you don't know, we live in a rather imperfect world. Did you know that? I guess you didn't have to hear that from me. You kind of know about it. And in a kind of, uh, I hope, somewhat lighthearted way, I want to share with you uh, the effects of living in an imperfect world. There was a time when my wife and I had two dogs, and uh, they were part of our family. We do not have them anymore. They're both deceased. But when we did, uh, I used to often uh, want to take them on walks in a nearby park. And the first thing I would do in order to engage in this activity was to fetch their leashes and to try to get them to sit still. You know how excited dogs are, to try to get them to sit still so that I could hook them up to the leashes because since this is an imperfect world, my dogs probably would be more inclined to follow their instincts to run after, say, some squirrel than to obey me. So I would put the leashes on, and then the next thing I would do, as I recall, would be to gather up my keys to our house, because in an imperfect world, nobody in their right mind leaves anything unlocked anymore. Well, before I would go, I would tell my family where exactly I'm going, because in an imperfect world, anything could happen, and you might need to be in touch with the family, and so I would tell them about my whereabouts. And then I would start walking down the block, my dogs pulling all the way, and oftentimes they would stop at my neighbor's property so as to make a deposit on his perfectly mowed lawn. And I probably should have cleaned it up, but I'm one of the reasons it's an imperfect world, and so I would just try to get out of there real quick because if my neighbor found out it was me he might start saying a lot of harsh things maybe even cussing me and and that would just cause us to be at odds with one another because after all in an imperfect world what's his is his and what's mine is mine this is his property and i have my property and that's the way it is in an imperfect world so i get to the corner of our block and there we're met by another dog unleashed uh, because in an imperfect world, uh, there are dog owners who don't obey the leash laws. And so the dogs are yelping and barking and even biting at one another. And I get really, really upset and say some things I shouldn't say because after all, uh, we're imperfect residents of an imperfect world. Well, we keep walking and we get to a place where there is a stop sign because there's a road we have to cross, but you have to look both ways because traffic is traveling back and forth. But there's another sign posted that says uh, 35 miles an hour. And so that's the speed limit. The drivers of the cars are not supposed to exceed. You see, because in an imperfect world, you need stuff like that because in an imperfect world, people just don't regulate their own behavior. And so you need some outside agency, namely the government, to tell you what to do and what not to do. Well, we find a place. When we could walk across, there's a pause in the traffic, and we make it almost to the other side, and 
Lo and behold, a car goes speeding by dangerously fast and dangerously close. And I look at the drivers and it's just filled with young kids because in an imperfect world, I'll tell you what we do. We let teenagers drive. It's an imperfect so then we walk on a little further and I have to pull my dogs to myself because there's a bunch of discarded garbage and beer cans along the side of a road because you see in an imperfect world, uh, people need to make use of artificial substances to medicate themselves so as to cope with the stress of an imperfect world. And then they get so relaxed with their artificial substances, they toss it out along the side of the road in my neighborhood. It's an imperfect world. Well, then we walk a little further, and I see a guy there with a flat tire, and it's he's trying to change his tire, and... Yeah, I should have stopped to help him. But hey, it's an imperfect world. And I got a bunch of broken stuff of my own I got to fix. So I just walk by. And then we get close to the park and my dogs start pulling like crazy because they do see a squirrel. And in an imperfect world, I'm sure my dogs just don't think that squirrel has a right to live. And so... They're just going crazy, and they're out of control, and I can't control them. And out of the corner of my eye, I see a lady looking at me with disdain, and that's because she has this little foo-foo dog who's just, you know, obeying her like crazy and under total control. And don't you see, in an imperfect world, you have to put up with arrogant foo-foo dog owners. They just, that's the way it is. Well, by now, I am just sweating up a storm because, you know, in an imperfect world, you just don't hardly ever get perfect temperature and humidity. You live in Houston and you die. <laughs> and so I see the park just up ahead, and I'm really beginning to think that even though we've gone through all of this in an imperfect world, it's really going to be worth it because we're going to get to the park. My dogs are going to enjoy running loose, and I'm going to enjoy watching them, but then... Oh, no. I see this sign posted there at the entrance to the park, and it says, Closed to the public due to the 50th anniversary celebration of the First United Methodist Church. You see, folks, in an imperfect world, there are Methodists. Don't you? All right. That's just a joke. It's just a joke. So disgusted and frustrated, I take my sorely disappointed dogs back home and I put my key in the door and I open the door and I bark at my wife and kids just like the dogs are prone to do because that's just the way it is in an imperfect world. So in case you didn't know that, I wanted to tell you it's imperfect. Are you encouraged? <laughs> Probably not, but what can you and I do to encourage one another? I mean, we might as well face reality. It is not a perfect world. Things just don't happen the way they're supposed to. In fact, things far more serious than the 
comical episode I just described to you are prone to happen. So what can you and I do to help each other out, to provide encouragement? Well, I'll tell you what. We can remind one another about the future. We can tell one another that though the now is surely filled with its challenges, the then will be far better. In fact, I know we could do that because the Lord who authored the scriptures offers us future hope as a means of encouragement. And that's what we've been spending, well, in particular, the last two Wednesdays, Wednesdays speaking about this marvelous future time characterized by the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. This millennium, this 1,000-year period when the Lord Jesus Christ is seated on the throne in the temple in Jerusalem and when, well, things are just much better than they are now. And so because I want to be encouraged by future hope, and I know you do as well, I would like for us to take a gander at two passages of Scripture, both in Isaiah, so that we could leave here in spite of our now experience, lifted up by the reality of our then experience. So let's find out a little more about this millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So take a look with me first at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Isaiah 2, verse 2. And it says, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Folks, the mountain of the house of the Lord spoken of in this verse is Jerusalem. And in the millennium, it, Jerusalem, will be established as the chief of the mountains. So in that day, there won't be any other so-called high places. There will no longer be any competing false religions. It'll be a much better day. You see, people will no longer make spiritual pilgrimages to places like Rome or Mecca. No, it will be Jerusalem because that will be the dwelling place of the king of kings. And we read that it will be raised above the hills and that all the nations will stream to it. Well, I must tell you, that's not the way it works generally. A stream flows downward, does it not? A stream doesn't flow upward. But this text says, though Jerusalem will be raised above the hills, the nations will stream to it. The nations will stream up to it. That is not natural. And that's the point of what's going to happen in the millennium. The Lord will reverse the natural tendencies of humankind to run from him and get in a flow contrary to the will and ways of God. And in this day, nature, the very nature of man, 
those men who believe in the Lord Jesus will be so overcome that on a wide scale, won't be the exception to the rule. Oh, no, it will characterize the day. Contrary even to human nature, men will flock to the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem where he will set up his kingdom on earth. And they will go to the beloved city as it is termed in the Bible to worship almighty God together. And so the text goes on to say in verse 3, and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Well, nations have gone up to Jerusalem throughout human history, but not in the same way. Nations have gone up to Jerusalem either to destroy it or to capture it or to occupy it. But then, during the millennial reign of Christ, these will not be the designs which nations have on Jerusalem. On the contrary, they will go up to Jerusalem for entirely different reasons, namely... They will come, as the text says, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. We've not seen anything like it because this is our now. But I'm telling you, be encouraged. Our then is really going to be much better. Notice, even during the millennium, which is in the future, God is still known as the God of Jacob. Let me make this point. God has never, nor will he ever, turn his back on his chosen people, Israel, because that would be contrary to his nature. And thank God that he will remain, even in the distant future, still the God of Jacob. That is very good news for Christians, because you see, if God has not forsaken Israel, then that's your assurance. God will not forsake you. You see how the character of God is at stake here. Well, then it says in verse 4 of Isaiah 2, and he will judge between the nations, and he will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Wow. This is not now. This is then. This is not the present. It's the future. Boy, the future is unlike the present. The future is far better. In the future, you see, the Lord will judge. And it's the Lord from his throne in Jerusalem who will be the one rendering decisions. It's the Lord who will be resolving conflicts between people groups. And therefore, there will be no more war. There will be, therefore, no need for weapons of war. Do you know what that kind of thing is like? No, you don't. And neither do I. For at almost no time in human history have we been free of conflict and war. 
But in that day, weapons of war will no longer be needed, and so they will be transformed, as the text says, into garden tools. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. You know how many how much of our resources, uh, financial and material and human resources, are expended on military weaponry and armament. But then there'll be no need for it. And so all those resources will go into agriculture. In other words, during the millennium, people will not be destroyed. They will be fed. What a day that will be. Well, I want you to look at one more passage also in Isaiah to tell us about future hope. And it's Isaiah chapter 11. Let's begin with verse 6. Isaiah 11, verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Wow. When in that day the Messiah reigns, nature itself will be transformed so that there will no longer be, think it about it, there will no longer be predators in the animal kingdom. I mean, today, if you go outdoors, you have to protect yourself from mosquitoes and spiders and snakes and lions and tigers and bears. That's the way it is. <laughs> but not in that day. You know, our pastor and Mrs. Morgan are gracious enough to invite the staff uh, annually to be with them uh, at their ranch and uh, to hunt those who care to do so. And I remember um, in my first experience there being driven to a very remote place on this ranch to be dropped off by the, the pastor I thought I could trust. <laughs> and I remember um, him saying to me, uh, you stay here and, you know, there are the birds and, you know, have at it and be back to get you sometime before the rapture I think is what he <laughs> but I remember his parting words were uh, he shouted this out as he was pulling away in this most unusual contraption of a vehicle I mean Jewish people don't typically ride in those things I mean it was just a cage but I remember him shouting out Stuart, do you know the sign of a baby, the sound of a baby rattle? And I said, yes, Pastor, I do. And I remember him saying, these were his last words in almost my last time on earth. He said, if you hear that, look down real quick and be prepared to run. It's a rattlesnake. Bye. Be warmed and be filled. And off he went. So I'm thinking... I'm not looking up in the sky at these birds. I'm looking down for the rattler. You know, I'm going to, what a way to go. I mean, I survived the wilds of New York, and now I'm going to die here in the middle of 
Well, it's the wilderness over there. It's really the wilderness. Nobody should be there. And so... I'm going to get back at the pastor. I'm going to take him hunting rats in the apartment building I grew up in in New York. I'll show. But anyway, don't you see, I, I really couldn't undistractedly enjoy the upward gaze because uh, there were predators down below. But I'm telling you, in that day, God will reverse things in the very corrupted natural order. There won't be predators. And then you could look up. You could just enjoy the ride. You won't have to worry about something biting you or picking you or stinging you or anything like that because it's not going to happen. Nature in that day will be at peace with itself and with human beings. And what's more, verse 7 says, also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion get this, will eat straw like the ox. The lion won't eat you. <laughs> In that day, the lion is going to eat straw. Does that sound far-fetched to you? It really shouldn't. I mean, if God can make a lion, he can sure make a lion eat straw. It's not that big a deal. And that's what will happen in that day. Furthermore, verse 8, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. See, one result of our sin uh, is that the very ecosystem in which we live has gotten messed up. It's really imperfect. But then the whole system, the whole environment, the whole natural order will take on an entirely new form so that the prey, the typical prey of predators, will no longer have to fear them. You see, the world will be restored to its unfallen condition. And predators will so respect human beings that even the little child will command the respect of a cobra or a viper. Now, folks, that isn't the case with our now experience. I mean, at present, the instinct for self-preservation is very strong in the life of every creature, human and animal. And so when any creature feels threatened uh, that creature is very prone to strike out but then in the messiah's millennial reign there will be absolute peace and trust and harmony and why not is he not the prince of peace so can you imagine a day when the most helpless and innocent of us a child a baby will be at ease with those who had been the most violent. So be hopeful, be encouraged. It's coming. The best is yet to come. Verse 9 tells us more about it. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full, can you imagine it, of the knowledge of the Lord 
as the waters cover the sea. At present, so many are at odds with God. Adversaries. But in that day, in the future, people will know God. They will be restored to right relationship with him so that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. So when people who had previously been alienated from God are restored to right relationship with God, can you see how the whole environment is restored? And it says in verse 10, Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. Do you know who that is? Yeah, that's the Lord Jesus, the root of Jesse. The nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. All the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, the Lord Jesus. So much of the tumult in our day, in our history, in human history, isn't it due to uh, aggressive uh, nationalism? Wars of conquest where the borders of one nation are not enough to contain it, but the sinfulness of man and extreme national pride spills over onto the borders sometimes of neighboring nations. It's a war of conquest. We will have it. We want it. And that's what happens with the nations who don't know God. But in that day, that won't be the case. They will go up to Jerusalem. They will worship at the feet of the root of Jesse. The world will be filled with the knowledge of Almighty God. And so the way with the nations now will give way to the way of the nations then. In that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. So we're going to close now just with this question and conclusion. If this is all true, what we read from Isaiah is true of our then, the millennium. How then should this marvelous picture of the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, how should it affect us now? I think this is the answer. We must not allow the stressful circumstances of our now extinguish the hope of our then. <sighs> There's no denying it. The circumstances of our now are not only stressful, they're oftentimes painful. And even followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are subject to it. Affliction of all kinds, financial travail, just like anybody else, and on top of it, persecution and being targeted by the evil one because of our identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes it gets, doesn't it, just a little tiresome. No, even overwhelming. And sometimes we feel like we don't have enough energy for the next breath. 
Sometimes we feel like the now circumstances which befall us are so enveloping us that we're going down and we won't make it up. Of course we do <laughs> because the Lord's grace is sufficient and he gives us each day our daily bread. But to give us hope and encouragement, exercise the discipline of letting your now experience, whatever it may be, be informed by the certainty of what will be if you're a Christian, your then experience. The Bible says, for our momentary light affliction. It doesn't mean pain is to be minimized. It just means relative to the bliss with which we will find ourselves eternally experiencing. What we are experiencing now is like unto momentary light affliction. I want to take encouragement in our grand future, and I hope you do as well. Now, what we've been speaking of is not even yet heaven. The millennium is not our eternal state. It's only our reality for 1,000 years. This is not yet the new Jerusalem, nor is it the new heavens and the new earth. And if it can be so grand, can you imagine what eternity in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, where there is no longer the presence of sin, no capacity to die, no disease, no crying, no tears, Nothing standing in the way of our heart's desire, and that is intimacy with the Lord Jesus. Nothing getting in the way of our unbridled worship. Nothing discouraging us from the most satisfying service rendered to the King of Kings forevermore. Can you imagine what our eternal state will be like if... 1,000 years on earth is going to be that much better. Don't give up because the Lord is not done. He's bringing us through difficult days. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better because it says so. <laughs> but hang in there for our momentary light affliction will bring us to a place, the likes of which is indescribable. And we will enjoy uh, the pleasure of being intimate and face-to-face -face with the Lord Jesus Christ forevermore. And this, Lord willing. See, I don't hold the future. He does. So that's why I say, Lord willing, if he allows us We'll get together in weeks to come and talk about our eternal state. Before we get to our eternal state, however, a very significant event takes place immediately at the conclusion of the millennium. 
And I wonder if you know what that is. Don't say it. Think about it. And let's see if you and I agree when we, Lord willing, get together next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being eternal.